One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello, I'm Anne McElvoy, and before we start this show, I'd like to ask you a favor. At Economist Podcasts, we're thinking about how we can tailor our shows to give you, the listeners, more of what you enjoy. So we'd be thrilled if you could take part in our listener survey. Tell us what you like hearing, what you'd like more of, or what we can do a bit differently. To take part, visit economist.com forward slash economist asks survey. I would very much appreciate it. So would the team here. And we look forward to hearing from you. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy, and this week we're asking, how do intelligence services need to change in the 21st century? When Richard Moore, the head of Britain's Secret Intelligence Service, or SIS, joined the agency during the Cold War, its very existence was just that, secret. Not only did his predecessors choose to stay in the shadows, never to be named, MI6, as it's commonly known, wasn't officially avowed at all, until 1994. So when Moore chose to start his first public speech recently, it was with a striking paradox, worthy of the opening of a spy movie. To stay secret, we're going to have to become more open. Geopolitical and social challenges are changing, he acknowledged, and to stay ahead, Moore wants his agency to change with them. That resonates for Britain, still dealing with the fallout of the attempted assassination of a Russian defector, Sergei Skripal, in 2018. But China's dominance in the digital sphere presents his biggest and most urgent threat. Chinese control of smartphones, data collection and artificial intelligence means that agents and informers can be unmasked at the click of a button or a camera grab. These surveillance technologies are being exported to other authoritarian states, keen to mirror Beijing's tightening grip. A sea change is necessary to shift MI6's way of working, recruiting and explaining itself in an era of suspicion of the state. And that's why he's casting his net out further to find new and more diverse recruits. But can the agency face up to the West's evolving adversaries. Richard Moore, welcome to The Economist Asks. Well, it's very nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Very nice to have you. And joining us today also in the studio is Shashank Joshi. He's The Economist's defence editor. Shashank, good to have you here too. Great to be here. Thanks. So, Richard, you first joined MI6, sometimes called SIS, but basically Britain's foreign intelligence outfit in the 1980s. The identity of C, as the chief is known, was kept secret. Here we are in 2021 in the Economist podcast studio, giving us an interview face to face. It's very different from the image a lot of people have of lurking in the shadows, isn't it? I suppose it is. We still have to do a bit of metaphorical lurking in the shadows to get our work done because the work that we do continues to be secret. 
But I think uh, as our society evolves, I think in a modern 21st century democratic society, it is important that from time to time I come onto this type of show to explain a bit about what we do, because I think that's part of, if you like, renewing our license to operate with the uh, with the British public. And there are always limits to what I can say, but I'm keen to, to explain a bit about who we are and what we do. So you've talked about being open to be secret, which is the central paradox of you being here with us today and talking a bit more publicly. But what has changed that makes you think it's a good idea to operate like that? As far as I'm aware, a lot of other intelligence services in the Western world don't necessarily do that. So clearly, it's a bit of a calculation of what you think you can get out of that. What do you think has altered? The reason I I floated this paradox of, of needing to be more open to stay secret is related to the way we go about doing our business. We're an overseas human intelligence service. That means that we have to recruit and run clandestine agents. Um, you know, the word clandestine is the clue here. We need to do it in a way that keeps those people safe and, and, and means we don't get caught. And the way in which you do that has to evolve over time. There's a balance here between the need to keep information really tight within an intelligence service and the need also to develop the sort of technological solutions to the problems that we find ourselves facing in a world of smart cities and increasingly intense surveillance technology deployed around the globe. And the only way I can see us doing that is to have a rather more kind of open relationship with the technology sector than we have hitherto had. Richard, as Anne mentioned, you joined MI6 in the 80s. And apart from the obvious point that the Soviet Union disappeared very soon after you joined, how has the culture of the service changed, the ways of thinking, the ways of operating, the sort of mentality of the place? It is a more diverse organization than it used to be. I mean, like many things, it's evolved hugely, like our society. I mean, as you may know, earlier in the year, I, I issued a public apology to uh, colleagues past and present who are LGBT plus because in 1987 you could not be a member of SIS and be openly gay. So I feel it's a more open organization. It, it had brilliant people then. It has brilliant people now, but less hierarchical, uh, less patriarchal of it. You know, we now have a situation where my deputy is a woman. Three out of the five people in the top leadership group are, are women. That's unrecognizable from the late 1980s. Clearly, a great deal has changed. And you've, you've talked about some of those changes at the upper echelons of the service. But I'm also curious that in that 112-year history, the 17 people who've been chosen to lead the service, they've all been men, they've all been white. Of the last 10, eight of them, including yourself, have been educated at Oxford or Cambridge in traditional fashion. You've sought to bring more diversity to the agency, but I'd just like to push you on how far you have yet to go. I mean, for example, today, how many members of your senior leadership team are ethnic minorities? None is the honest answer on that. So we have a long way to go, Shashank, a long, long way. The day I came into the role, I said to the service that I was determined I would be the last chief to be selected from an all-male, white, straight shortlist. And I wanted to get after that from day one. 
You know, I just indicated that in some ways the gender balance of leadership has changed in a really positive way. On people from a BAME background, from a minority ethnic background, we've got a long way to go. We're, we're only about half of the national average across the organization. We have just had two people who've come into our senior leadership group having been promoted into it. They are the first people in our service to get through. And that's clearly not acceptable. And we know it isn't. And we're determined to change this over, over the coming years. Is that because you think there's fundamentally less trust among ethnic minorities in the secret services? You know, I think it's a hugely complex issue. I think critically, you, you have to think that you will belong in a place, don't you? And we have to deal with quite a lot of mythology around us, which can be off-putting, I think, to people from certain backgrounds. It's been off-putting traditionally for, for women. Daniel Craig has humanized uh, Bond a bit, hasn't he, in the, in the last couple of movies. But if you go back to the original, it's pretty misogynistic. It's pretty violent. That's not terribly appealing uh, to many women. I think in the BAME community, uh, I would flag two particular issues. I think um, that we have to work very hard to reach out to black British people because I think uh, like other bits of, say, law enforcement or, or um, security and intelligence, that that is not something that young black British people think of. And then, uh, you know, very obviously, um, I think for uh, young British Muslims, there is the barrier to get through around terrorism, the portrayal of Islam uh, sometimes in our society. So we have many people from those communities in our service. Uh, it's just that we don't hit the national average, and I want us to do that. I want us to be fully representative of the, of the country we serve. Let's turn to the big challenges that you addressed in a speech in London recently. And you said in the first speech you've given us head of MI6, indeed, that the greatest single priority for the service is to adapt to the rise of China. I wondered why you spelt that out in such a a public forum. It seemed to have a message behind it that we, we needed to be more afraid of the rise of China. And it seems like quite a zigzag from a few years ago when the messaging seemed to be China is a great trade and investment partner and that we should be open to China. Again, what has changed or do you, have you just reached a different judgment? The fact is that the work we're doing on, on China is now the most important work that we are doing. And it's not that the work we do on Russia and international terrorism is, is any less important than it was. It's just that the prominence and the need to understand China has grown because China's influence and place in the world has grown. So I, I don't think it is at all about wanting to be afraid of China. But I said very clearly in the speech that we needed to trade with China and that we needed uh, their cooperation on the key transnational issues, climate change, uh, biodiversity. At the end of the day, climate change is, is the biggest issue of all. But at the same time, I was very clear that where China, because it is a government which is an authoritarian government with very different values from our own, where it pursues its interests and its value systems in ways which clash with our own, it's quite important that we are robust in standing up for those values and interests. And in particular, the key sort of battleground, if you like, is around technology. Do we compete effectively with the Chinese in the really big technologies of the 21st century? 
I think what's really interesting about that is when we think of Russia as an intelligence challenge, we think of Novichok in Salisbury, subversion across Europe, sort of paramilitary destruction. When we think of China, it's very different. But our understanding is still evolving. You know, people instinctively understand the debate over Huawei, that is, control of telecommunications gear can give a foreign country, a foreign agency access to data. What we're yet to fully understand or or debate is things that seem less directly involved in the security space. That is, Chinese access to data around ride-sharing apps, dating apps, genetic testing kits, biometric data. I think you hinted at some of this in your speech, Richard, talking about a global surveillance web and how it affects the states that are buying this stuff from the Chinese, but also how it affects your agents and officers and their ability to go about their work. How are you tackling this? I mean, are you now faced with the challenge of penetrating apps, technology firms in ways previously you would have focused on chancelleries, foreign ministries, defense ministries? If one looks at the modern world, you'd you'd expect that we are seeking intelligence on the issues that really count for our government. And uh, they get to choose what we go after uh, intelligence on. So if key technologies are are going to be one of the critical determinants of of national power and influence over the 21st century, you would expect that we would take an interest in understanding some of those. But the fact is, this is a difficult area to understand. And what I was uh, trying to set out in that speech um, was that we could all understand about debt traps. Debt trap being lending to developing countries, state lending, Chinese lending in this case, and then trapping that country in a dependency or in certain conditions. Yes, loans which are not fully transparent, loans where you know it's going to be difficult for those countries to repay them, as always, when the person who's loaned you the money comes looking for a repayment and you can't give it to them, they will ask for something instead. Uh, and in this case, we've seen a couple of instances where airports, ports, this sort of thing has been turned over to Chinese control. The data trap that I was trying to articulate is, is something where I think we are fully seized of the potential of of other nations um, having access to critical data around our infrastructure that we wouldn't be comfortable with. It's just that overseas, I think that that level of um, understanding of these issues is not as high as it is here. And it needs to be because uh, over time, if you allow access into key data, then you will slowly erode your sovereignty. And of course, China is looking for this, um, these data streams, because the greater amount of data you get, but also critically the amount of diversity of data you get from around the globe, the better your ability to build the artificial intelligence systems of the future. I think that's worth us exploring a little bit more in terms of what it means for the way you operate. Clearly, you're trying to become a more technological service. You're trying to be more open, partly in order to be able to work with outsiders, outside tech companies who have much of the expertise, the capital that governments no longer do in this area. How does your day-to-day functioning have to change? The way you train officers, the way you prepare them for espionage in this digital age, and how does that compare to how you were trained, how you were prepared for the task of recruiting agents? Or is it fundamentally the same thing of looking someone in the eye and persuading them? Well, it's still fundamentally a question of building a relationship with a fellow human being. That hasn't changed. So I need officers who can build trust with people who are taking uh, significant risks to work with us. So that hasn't changed. But as I try to 
describe a bit, if you are then operating and trying to meet these same people in a world of ubiquitous sensing technology of surveillance, then then clearly, you know, without being too explicit, it's uh, it's it's more difficult. But that is the modern world. You know, in 1987, I was operating in the world as it was then and using the techniques that were required then. Now, in a modern generation of officers coming into SIS, I mean, they are digitally native. They have grown up in an environment where they understand uh, technology in a way that older folk like me, you have to kind of retrofit it on. But for them, it's just a natural part of their makeup. And yes, our, our training and our, our, what we call our tradecraft has evolved to take account of that, that technology, both the technology we're using to help us and the technology that is arrayed against us. Probably inconveniently for your argument, I was just thinking back, you know, I come from the, the end of the Cold War era, we talk about Russia and its its influence in just a moment. But I'd be extremely nervous about working, if I were living in an authoritarian a state, be it a China, Russia or dependencies, with a Western intelligence service, more so than I would have been at the time when I was writing about the intelligence wars in the 1989 period, the 90s, precisely because the risks that people are running are much greater and the digital surveillance and counter surveillance is so advanced. In fact, I'm almost amazed anybody does it. Brave men and women do do it and they do it because they can trust us because we have evolved the way in which we do these things to to take care of them. It's one of those absolute codes of honor in, in our organization that if you are prepared to come and uh, work with us, that we will look after you. I think as long as we maintain that sense of trust, that sense that we are uh, pound for pound the best human intelligence service in the world, then people will want to come and help us. But if you look at some of those who were working with the security services, formally or otherwise, Alexander Litvinenko, Sergei Skripal. The former was murdered in London. The latter was very nearly murdered in the small city of Salisbury. And a civilian called Dawn Sturgis was accidentally killed by the poison in that last case. If we look at those, your perspective doesn't entirely seem to pay off, does it? Well, look, I won't go into details. It goes precisely back to my point that I don't talk about the people who do or don't work with us. But, uh, you know, what I would say uh, on, for example, the Salisbury event is we're, we're about to move into an inquiry. No doubt there will be lessons to be learned from that. But I won't prejudge uh, where the inquiry will go uh, with that. But it is really important, isn't it, to remember who is responsible for those for those events. There are three Russian uh, military intelligence officers who are suspects in the case of the attempted murder of Sergei Skripal and, of course, the tragic death of uh, Dawn Sturgis. So I think we have to keep the focus very firmly on the people who decided to come and carry out those extraordinary acts on the streets of the UK. Well, of course, what we've been watching most closely in the last couple of weeks has been this staggering military build-up on the edges of Ukraine in Belarus uh, and watching with growing concern, I think. There's, there's very important questions as to Russian intentions. We're seeing clearly from open sources and the people we speak to deployments that are very irregular, that are completely uh, out of the ordinary, that don't suggest simply training efforts. And of course, we have just seen Vladimir Putin himself issue 
almost remarkable, sort of almost 19th century demands of NATO, guarantees of no further expansion, guarantees of no NATO weapons on Ukrainian soil, all of these incredible things that look like a sort of interwar ultimatum. What is Putin up to? Very simply, will he invade? I think your parallel is a really interesting one there. I think Vladimir Putin does think in terms of spheres of influence, I mean, very clearly, and he articulated that in his in his public language. He really does think that Russia uh, in the 21st century has the right to sort of impose limits on the sovereignty of the of the countries on its periphery. And, and that's a problem because uh, those countries are not going to accept that. From our perspective, the UK and, other, and our allies, it, neither are we. So we do have this sort of rather chronic clash of ideas and ideology around this issue. I mean, it feels like we're in the middle of one. I won't comment on, on intelligence around this issue, but you know, I would note that my colleague, the director of the CIA, Bill Burns, doesn't shoot off to Moscow uh, if there's nothing up. Um, so clearly, you know, there is a good deal of concern about intentions here. And it's really important that we're, we're very clear in our communicating to Mr. Putin about the price that would be paid if he were to push ahead with that. I mean, I, I hope he won't. I think uh, the Ukraine has moved on since 2014. I think they are more able to resist. And clearly, the sort of economic and financial price would be huge for a Russian people that's already suffering from a raft of sanctions from 2014. I understand that Ukraine is better armed, better prepared, probably has allies in the West who've had the warning shots a, a couple of few years ago. But in fact, it's, you know, it's not a NATO member. And NATO itself is stretched enough and under enough pressure on what its Article 5 commitments would mean. So if I were to play Vladimir Putin for a moment, I might think, well, this is all a lot of sound and fury coming from the Western allies. But uh, what does this counter threat really mean? Are we clear about that? I think I'm conscious also that America is deeply distracted in Asia. We're seeing intensifying military competition over Taiwan, increasing numbers of incursions into its air defense identification zone, real tensions there. And if you're looking at this from Moscow, I think you have serious questions to ask as to whether the US would really have the resources and bandwidth to deal with simultaneous crises. Uh, and I think we have to be mindful of strategic surprise, of, of assuming the Russian calculation won't dramatically and surprisingly change. Well, and uh, first of all, I, I'm glad it was it was vaguely credible for someone who uh, understands Russia as well as you do. I do accept that there is a uh, risk of miscalculation around some of this, simply because in both Beijing and in Moscow, they don't necessarily read the world um, outside as well as they might. And I think in particular, uh, they don't read Washington very well. One can understand with the change of administrations, they might be struggling a bit. I worry that they will underestimate Washington. They have a narrative, particularly the Chinese. They have a narrative of you know, Western frailty, of decline and, and the rise of China. The danger is that this, this makes them overconfident and overreach. And I think it's therefore important that dialogue is open with both Moscow and Beijing uh, and that the messaging is clear. And because it, I also accept that in both capitals, they, they sometimes see things that we do in the West and read them in a way that uh, we are not intending them. So the more we are in good dialogue with these capitals, the better. The other big 
crisis that we look at as we survey the world is the sort of looming advance of Iran's nuclear program with the collapse of the, the deal signed by Barack Obama. You're very familiar with that. You were political director at the Foreign Office and you you dealt very closely with the Iran file. So you know all about negotiating with the Iranians and from your new perch, you're presumably very interested in their intentions. Is the deal dead, really? It looks like it's very, very difficult to, to see it surviving. And what are your plan Bs? Or perhaps more pertinently, what do you see as Israel's plan Bs? We have talks back up and running. That is welcome. It's been uh, long delayed since the incoming Iranian government took office. So I'm glad that it started in, in Vienna. We'll have to see what comes out of that. I mean, I really, really hope that we get to a diplomatic solution uh, on this because, as you rightly say, Shashank, you know, we've been in a, a period now where the Iranians have not been in compliance with it. They've been learning stuff through research and development. They've been uh, doing things with enrichment, which is taking it to levels which are, are way beyond um, the deal itself, but also just not conceivably for a civilian program. So we, we badly need this back into a deal. And I hope very much that they manage to reach one over coming weeks. I was struck by the tone of your speech, Richard, in that you talked about how adversaries are growing more powerful, pouring money and ambition, was a phrase you used, into developing technologies. Threats are becoming bigger and, and, and so on. And at the same time, I thought, well, it's a very good reality check. But I might, if I were listening to that speech, think, well, Britain comes across as, as as being a bit, you know, on the back foot or under threat. And we are, in some senses, however professional the service, and it has a very high, if it was a fridge in the International Intelligence Committee, would have a, you know, it would have a good AAA rating. I don't think anyone thinks that MI6 is a really bad service. But we are dwarfed by the might of Russia, by China. We're also, to take the non-authoritarian states dependent to a large extent on America. So does this line that MI6 punches above its weight, does it still really wash? And thank you. I have never, ever before now heard the service compared to a fridge, but I'll take, I will take the AAA rating. Uh, thank you very much. I, I said in the speech, I, I mean, I'm not at all downcast about this, either about my service's ability to keep doing what it needs to do, because we, we have innovated from the get-go and we'll continue to do it. So I'm, I, I kind of relish the challenge, frankly. I think we will, we will rise to it. And I have brilliant technologists and operational officers who will find a way through and are currently finding a way through. And on the broader challenge, I did say in my speech, my job is to look at the threat side of the ledger. But uh, likewise, uh, I, I back us in the West uh, to come through on this one because I really do believe that with freedoms, the sort of freedoms we have and the sort of entrepreneurial animal spirits that we can unleash within our societies, that we will find a way to, to, to win this competition. I think that does come off the back, however, of our failure in some sense in another competition in Afghanistan and our struggles with jihadist terrorism. What I'd like to ask is, what have you learned from the last 20 years of doing counterterrorism about what works and what doesn't? Because I know a lot of American or CIA officers think it's bent their service out of shape. They've done so much paramilitary stuff that perhaps tradecraft has been eroded. What lessons have you drawn from 20 years and, and perhaps very sober ones, given what we've just seen in Kabul? Well, Afghanistan is, is clearly reversed, and I'm you know, not, not going to pretend otherwise. It, it certainly is. But 
you know, one thing I do take comfort from following that reverse is that we have learned a huge amount in my service and indeed our partner services across the globe. If I compare it to where we were, and of course I was in the service at the time in the late 1990s, I was in Islamabad, the year that Osama bin Laden moved to Afghanistan in 1996. I was in Islamabad at the time. We are vastly better at doing counterterrorism work. We have a vastly better network across the globe of partners who do this work. So there is a resilience around this, I think, that was not there uh, in the run-up to 9-11. And that gives me some hope. On the broader issue, of course, SAS, MI6 doesn't have a paramilitary uh, arm in the way that CIA does. So we, we never really had that shift. We have always focused in our counterterrorism work on recruiting and running agents and recruiting and running them into the most dangerous organizations in the world. And that has required different types of techniques to the sort of techniques you need when you're running up against serious uh, state powers. But it nevertheless, as you can imagine, it requires you to work and find some extraordinarily brave people who are prepared to do that work and work with us. Something I'm curious about is your own biography, because you, you talk there, you're very committed to the intelligence services and that that's the, the mission. But you've also had other roles. You have been a, a, a diplomat. You have been an ambassador uh, to Turkey. You've had a, a senior job in the Foreign Commonwealth Office. There does seem to be now more of a trend for, for those who are the upper echelons of intelligence services to work more broadly with uh, with the Foreign Office or with the departments in the end that supplying intel to serve. But does it lead to some confusion if we meet you a few years ago and you're an ambassador to a country and now we meet you as a C, the head of the intelligence services, that we might not entirely know what we're dealing with? I did spend uh, 25 years pretending to be a diplomat before I then be- became one. So, so you say. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was a bit of a transition. Uh, actually, I was worried, Anne, uh, that, you know, obviously uh, over the course of a 25-year career, even as a, as a member of SIS, the occasional friend becomes aware of what you do. And when I became an ambassador, my personal uh, nightmare was that they would be looking at me and thinking, what a Walter Mitty pretended he was in SAS when all along he was a straight diplomat. So it was a slightly paradoxical position to find yourself in. But to answer the more serious question around this, I, I, I learned a huge amount from going out from the service, um, going as an ambassador to Turkey, and then coming back into being deputy national security advisor job very briefly, and then I, I was political director in the then foreign office. I learned a huge amount from that. I think I learned a lot about the way the cabinet office works, the way the foreign office works, the way that policymakers and ministers work in a way that if you are in an intelligence service, inevitably we're a bit cut off from some of that. So I I am very keen to encourage more of my officers pick up experience um, both there and, and indeed in industry as they go through their career. Richard, you mentioned earlier how Daniel Craig, the most recent Bond, has shifted the dial on the image of spies. He's a more human bond, a more empathetic bond, a more frail one. The British actor Ray Fiennes has played your fictional counterpart, M, in the most recent Bond films. So we can't resist asking, who would you cast to play you, or does Mr Fiennes suffice? I think he does a great job, doesn't he? It's sort of the tone of uh, exasperation at 007 as the authentic one. I, I, I'm a great fan of Judy Dench in, in, in the role. I thought she was absolutely spectacular and maybe she's a precursor for the uh, future C uh, that we will have uh, when we have a woman in this role. Richard Moore, C 
Thank you very much indeed for joining us today. Thank you, Anne. Thank you, Shashank. And thank you, Shashank, for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. And we'd love to know what you think. What's the risk in treating repressive states like China as a threat, while the West also courts them for trade and cooperation on climate change? And how can spy masters like Richard Moore convince potential recruits that the intelligence services are truly open to all? Write to us, podcast at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Pods. Richard Moore voiced his concerns about escalating tensions between Russia and Ukraine. And since our conversation, President Biden has adopted a tough new tone with Vladimir Putin, but it's enough to avert another Russian incursion. You can read The Economist's assessment on our website. I highly recommend it. While you're there, why not become a subscriber for your best introductory offer? Go to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. My producers were Alicia Burrell and Pete Norton, and the executive producer was Hannah Marino. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.